Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Hey Amen. Thank you, Ashley. So good morning. Good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. We continue this morning in a series that we're doing this fall. I hate to use that word. I'm sorry. It's like it's like the Florida State football game. They hold out hope and take it away from you at the last minute. I thought you'd laugh at that. Never mind. You obviously didn't watch it. We're so bad people don't watch our games anymore. But this fall, we're doing this series uh, on the kingdom parables of Jesus. When Jesus describes his gospel, he uses stories like this because the gospel is not just something to believe. It's something that we are together becoming as we believe. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And that word kingdom in the Bible is really, really important. It refers to the concrete reign of God in the world. Now, I use that word very intentionally there because there's some debate about the nature of the kingdom, uh, the degree to which it actually takes shape in the world. Uh, the <laughs> These are the things that pastors argue about with one another when they get together, if you can believe that. We, we talk about, is, is the kingdom here in the Bible, is it just something that's spiritual and heavenly that we'll experience once we you know, leave this earth and go to heaven? Or is it social and political? Is it something that happens in the world today? And I don't know that it really matters, because either way, biblically we can say that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he means something concrete. It is the actualization of God's reign. And the degree to which it takes root in the world is not really the issue. The issue is to what degree it takes root in you and me. Ray Ortland, in a book he, he wrote about the gospel, he said that the church is the model home of the new neighborhood that God is building in the new heavens and the new earth. And I really like that. That helped me. Uh, the church is the kingdom on display in the world, in the way that Christians live in contrast to the rest of the world. So the question that we have to ask anytime we come across this word kingdom in the Bible is, does Christian faith make any difference? 
does believing as we do as Christians make any difference in the way we live our lives? And the absolute answer of the Bible is yes. And that difference is itself a witness to the truth of the gospel. The difference in us is the actualization of God's reign in the world as we live, as people under his reign and rule. And so each week we've been using these kingdom parables of Jesus in Matthew's gospel to try to describe that difference. And so when Jesus says, if you look there in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like, as he's done over and over again in this gospel, as he does here, he's helping us imaginatively apply what the Bible means when it calls us, as people of faith, strangers, aliens, a peculiar people. And it's simple things. Like this morning, the teaching here is that one of the ways that we can be the light of the world, one of the ways that we can shine in the darkness and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus to the world is simply by being a profoundly grateful people. Our society is not producing grateful people. You with me? That's not hard to tell the way we yell at one another on C-SPAN and Facebook and just about everywhere else people congregate these days. Our society is no longer producing grateful people, but the gospel can, the gospel should, as Jesus helps us to see here in this story. And of all the virtues, gratitude is the sign of personal, emotional, and spiritual health. So say the people who've written about these things. Grateful people are the happiest people on earth. I've told you before about the study by Robert Emmons and Michael McCullough where students were divided into three groups. The one were given the task of keeping a gratitude journal, so they were to go through the day writing every, everything that they felt grateful for, every good thing that happened. They just filled pages of a journal with all the great things that they looked around and saw happening in their life. The second group was to do the opposite. They were to go through the day logging all of the hassles and frustrations, so all they did was keep this running list of all of the awful, you know, frustrating bad things that happened. Doesn't that sound terrible? But it's the way we live. They just like had the discipline of getting it out of here and down on a piece of paper. The third group, all they did was just did a running tally of the day. I ate this for breakfast and then I went here at this time and so forth. And, and, the, and scientists studied these results and those in the first group who actively par- participated and practiced the habit of gratitude, they were found to be in a better state of mind at the end of the study. They were found to have more optimism and overall happiness. They had better relationships with other people. They slept better. They even went to the doctor less. It's fascinating. Gratitude changes us, and it can change the world. And so if I had to summarize the teachings of this parable, it would be this, if you're ready for a summary of what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Matthew 21 through 16 is really about this, that Christian theology is grace. And therefore, Christian ethics is gratitude. If Christianity is grace, then the only way to live as a Christian is gratitude. The kingdom of heaven is a gift, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. And therefore, the fundamental motivation of kingdom people is gratitude. You can be motivated by a lot of things in your life, by uh, shame from the past or fear of the future and trying to secure a place for yourself in the future or trying to make a name for yourself or just the security that business uh, success and financial prosperity bring, but for a kingdom person, for the one living in the realm of God's reign in Jesus, in the world, the core motivation of their life is gratitude. And that's what this text is about. That's what this story is about. And we're going to see three things as we talk about this theme of gratitude this morning. As usual, three things here. We're going to see first the enemy of gratitude. Secondly, we're going to see the exercise of gratitude. 
uh, in the negative example of the all-day workers, we're going to flip it around and see what we can learn from their bad behavior. And then thirdly, we're going to see ultimately the energy for gratitude. So the enemy and the exercise and the energy for gratitude, three E's, hopefully you can remember that, and we're walking in the spirit this morning. So let's begin, okay? With first, the enemy of gratitude. Now I'm going to use the word entitlement to describe this, another E word there. I'm going to use the word entitlement. And I had all of this, I had, I had uh, paragraphs and paragraphs in my notes of, of just examples from our culture uh, about the, just the ugliness of entitlement because we know this is a problem in our culture, right? But I took all of that out for the sake of time because it doesn't really matter. Uh, entitlement is not just something that the millennials struggle with. Can we lay off the millennials for a little while, guys? Y'all with me? Lay off them. I mean, we all have a problem with this. This is a spiritual, human problem, this idea of entitlement. Whether you're religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. You see, these all-day workers in Jesus' parable are upset because they feel that they deserved to be paid more than those who only worked an hour. And you might agree. I mean, I do, to be honest. This is an unsettling story. I told the first service, this is my favorite of all of Jesus' parables, and it's my least favorite of them at the same time. That's really where my heart goes as, as I read and, and study about these things. It's an unsettling story, but it's not an, an economics lesson. The payment schedule is, is beside the point, really. What Jesus wants us to focus our attention on is the response at the end of the all-day workers, their demand. See, their response is not just a complaint, it's a demand. And so the enemy of gratitude is the feeling that you're owed by God. Let me say that again. The enemy of gratitude is if you begin to live with the feeling or the demand that you're owed by God because life is wages. It's a very dangerous spiritual reality. And I will boil it down to verse 8. If you want to look there, where the master has his foreman call the laborers together and he, he treats them as they demand to be treated. He says, pay them their wages, verse 8. Pay them their wages. See, entitlement comes from seeing life not as a gift that you receive, but as a wage that you earn. And that's what we want to dig into in our own hearts uh, this morning. We want to dig into our own hearts about that and ask those hard questions. Where am I living? Not as if life is a gift, but as, it's a, as if it's a, a wage that I have to earn. An entitled person, which is every one of us in the room, lives by the motto, I deserve that. And if I don't get... What I think I deserve, then somebody else is to blame, not me. Now, where does this come from? Where does that kind of reality come from? Now, I'm a pastor and not a social scientist, so I can only tell you what the Bible says, and this is what the Bible says. There's a passage in Romans chapter 4 that's helpful, and it says this. It's on the screen for you to look at as I read it. This is Paul writing to the Romans. Paul writes, Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted, not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says there's two fundamental ways to approach God. The first is you can think of it as work, as wages. You do the work, God pays out what you're owed at the end of your work, at the end of the day, or at the end of your life. And this is the way most people approach religion. It's the way most people approach God. It's the way most people approach Christianity. You put the time in, you go to church, be a good person, you follow all the rules, you do all the right things, and the payout is a good life. Or, like I said, the payout is at least heaven at the end of life. And Paul is writing to say, no, that's not 
the way it works. He's writing about righteousness, about how to have a right relationship, how to be in a right relationship with God. And this approach, he says, you know, it says you don't work. You don't work. You don't you don't put in the work and then God pays you out at the end of the day. The righteousness that you need is not payment for work that you've been done. It's a gift. Paul's saying that way of thinking about things isn't even Christianity. It's outside of Christianity because in Christianity, righteousness is something that must be given. And in order to receive it, if it's a gift, look there in verse 5. You have to intentionally not work and instead believe. And so for Paul, believing is the opposite of working. Faith is resting in Christ. And the parable here in Matthew 20 doesn't just appear out of thin air, see. It is given in response to what happens in chapter 19. And I said, you know, this is why it would be helpful to you to bring your Bibles to church if you could. Because we need to look back in in chapter 19 for just a bit. And there, Jesus, in, in Matthew 19, he has an encounter with a man who we call the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus with a question. And listen to the question. Teacher... What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And it's the wrong question, as we've already seen, because eternal life can't be bought. But he was the one who thought, I have to work for it. And Jesus goes to great length to show the man and his disciples who are standing there this lesson by requiring of this man a payment that was too great for him to pay. And we're told, we know, the man walked away because he was not willing to part with his wealth, which is what Jesus was the price that Jesus asked for. And then what happens, if you're unfamiliar with then Peter shows up, and Peter starts doing Peter things again. Peter can't get out of his own way. He pipes up as this man's walking away, and this is my paraphrase. He says, Jesus, you know, that guy... He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. He wasn't willing to go all the way with you, but we, we've left everything. What do we get? That's verse, 19, that's verse 27. You can, you can look at it for yourself later. What do we get? And all Peter is doing is Peter is showing that he's just better at being wrong about the way the kingdom works than the rich young ruler was. Because his theology is the same. Peter says, we've given more than anybody else. We've worked harder. We've worked longer. We've been with you from the beginning. What are we going to have? And Jesus offers the parable to answer Peter's question. And so we need to make sure we all understand the story. And it goes like this. There are some workers who the master hired at the beginning of the day around 6 a.m. 6, 6 a.m. That's when uh, they would have gone out to work. So closing time would have been 6 p.m. So a 12-hour day here. He offers to pay these people that he, that he hires at the beginning of the day a denarii. It's the going rate for a day's labor. He wasn't, cheap. he wasn't cheap. He was giving them a really fair wage, which is why they gladly accept. Uh, But what happens is as the day goes on, there's so much work to do that three hours later at 9 a.m., he needs more workers. And so he goes out and hires another group. And we're told there in verse 4, he promises to give them what was right. So this is a non-specified amount. I was curious about the word there. It's the word that the Bible uses is the word righteousness. So this is a story about righteousness too. Three hours later, noon, more workers. Then at 3 p.m. And then one last time at 5 p.m., just an hour before the close of business, He goes out, brings people into the field, and they work. So some worked all day. Some worked as little as an hour. 
And in his question in chapter 19, verse 27, it's clear that Peter sees himself as one of the all-day workers. He's worked harder. He's sacrificed more. And he wants to know what that gets him. And the answer that the parable offers is nothing. Because that's not the way it works with God. Oh, that just like drops like a thud on your heart, doesn't it? Anybody else? You guys awake? You with me? Hello? Let's try that again. Hello? You awake? You with me? Okay. Be with me. Because that's how that, that should come like a hammer on your soul. Because it smashes the smithereens so much of the way we live our lives. But let's get back to gratitude. Because you see the wages, this wages approach to God doesn't produce gratitude. That's why we're going after it. That's why Jesus goes after it. Because, of course, what happens when you feel you're owed something and God doesn't come through? Because, by the way, that happens all the time. That's just kind of the, that's the way life works. And you see it in the, par- the parable. If you approach God as if life is wages you've earned, you'll end up miserable, grumbling, blaming God, full of envy, void of any joy or appreciation for the good things that you have, trapped in what James Hunter calls a narrative of injury where victimhood becomes central to your self-conception and your anthem becomes, it's not fair. You just go through life singing, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, like I am Groot, I am Groot, right? Just, it's not fair, it's not fair. Which is just another way of saying, I deserve better. That's what happens to the all-day workers in the story. They're not treated unfairly, but they feel like they've been. So the master has to remind them, verse 13, look there. Friends, I'm doing you no wrong. They were more than happy at the beginning of the day to get paid the one denarii. The commentators all say that in this culture, the master hiring them in the first place was an act of mercy and generosity. Just that. They should be overjoyed to have the opportunity to work. They've not been wrong, but they feel like they've been wrong because the one-hour workers got paid the same amount. You see, people, people stuck in a wages mindset resent the reality that the world is bathed in God's generosity and would prefer a harsh meritocracy instead. And just think about how twisted that is, that in our sin... That in our sin, we, our flesh would so grab onto works righteousness that we would really begin to resent that the world is bathed in God's generosity and would prefer to live in a harsh meritocracy. Let that sit on your heart for just a minute. See, the point of Jesus' story is not that the all-day workers got what they deserved and the one-hour workers got grace. The point is that nobody gets what they deserve. Everybody gets grace. And if that's true, be careful about demanding justice. You don't want justice. The story is told of R.C. Sproul, who taught me in seminary, once had a class where he assigned three five-page papers. The first was due just a few weeks after uh, classes began, the second at midterm, the third at the end of the semester. And he was clear with his students. He said, if you don't turn, if you don't turn the papers in by the due date, it's an F. Uh, no, no questions, no extensions. You know, that's the, that's the rule. Well, as you might imagine, some of the students missed the first deadline because even seminary students can be lazy at times or just fail to you know, calendar out their time. They came to Dr. Sproul begging for mercy, and because it was a Christian seminary and he was a Christian professor, he gave them an extension, showing them great grace. He didn't give them the F that he promised. The problem was the next time, even more students missed the deadline. And they begged Dr. Sproul, who was a pretty harsh man, 
but he, uh, he gave them an extension again. And then the third time, at the end of the semester, even more students didn't turn the paper in on time, and they begged for mercy. And as they had come to imagine that he would show it, Dr. Sproul this time uh, walked to the front of the class and said no, and began going down the grade book and marking F, F, F for all the students that didn't turn in the paper. Someone in the class shouted, that's not fair. It was a student named Fitzgerald, and Dr. Sproul said, Fitzgerald, weren't you late with your paper last month? Yes, Fitzgerald replied. Dr. Sproul said, well, since it's justice you want, it's justice you'll get. And he changed the grade from the midterm paper from an A to an F. And said, anybody else want justice? And suddenly it was very quiet in the classroom. Nobody gets justice. Everybody gets grace. But nobody's owed grace. See, there's a certain math that the parable is teaching us to live our life with. And this is true. Listen, this is absolutely true. And if, 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 if only this would land upon our hearts this morning, this is the way life works for every single one of us in the room. Nobody gets less than they deserve. Everybody gets more than they deserve. Every time, no matter what's happening in life, if you're in the room this morning and you're breathing, every breath is grace. And therefore, the overriding reality of your life should be gratitude. And so we turn to the next point, which is the exercise of gratitude will be much quicker from here. But the all-day workers are an example of ingratitude. Now, that's hard to say because their response seems so reasonable. It seems so much like what we would do and what we do do all the time, day after day, multiple times a day. But there's something very wrong about what we see from these people here. And from their negative example, we can learn what gratitude positively looks like. And that's the work that we have to do in this part of the sermon. So I want to focus on verse 15, if you'd look there. And this is the money phrase, I think. The master comes to these people and he says, Do you begrudge my generosity? Because in their attitude, they had done just that. God is fundamentally generous. It's his nature to be overflowing. And so ingratitude is an attack on his generosity. Ingratitude is character assassination with God. So anytime, listen to me, anytime you act or feel as if he's not being generous with you, or anytime you hate that he is being generous to somebody else and not you, that's ingratitude. Gratitude is the response to God's generosity that should explode from our hearts. Gratitude believes him to be generous. It celebrates his goodness both to you and to everybody else. And so there's both a vertical and a horizontal element to this in our lives. And I'm going to make a lot of this because I think the text does too. Gratitude is about how you respond to God when he's generous to you and how you relate to others when he's generous to them. And so there are these two things that I want you to just see here. Gratitude does two things, really. It's two habits. The two habits of gratitude are, first, thanking God. So the, ver the, the vertical is just this attitude, this practice of, of giving thanks to God. Secondly, though, gratitude also celebrates with others. So a life of gratitude is a life that's just constantly giving thanks to God and celebrating, giving thanks to God and celebrating. And let's take each of those in turn just very quickly. The first thing we see in the text is that their response to the master's generosity was not joy and wonder. Look what it says, verse 10 and 11. Each received a denarius 
And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Oh, boy, here we go. You might remember we began the year talking about this for a number of weeks in a row until you accused me of grumbling about your grumbling. Do you remember that? This is a really big deal in the Bible. It's amazing how often this word comes up, and it's a big deal because it's a big sin. When you grumble, you're accusing God of doing something wrong. We know this because of the way the master responds in verse 13. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong, he reminds them, because that's exactly how they felt. But why? That's the question. What made them feel like they were being wronged? It's an important question to ask and answer. The Psalms, for example, are full of songs of lament. Psalms, the Psalms are full of complaining about God. And so we have to say that complaining about God can be an act of faith as long as you're complaining to God about God. That's what the psalmists were doing, but it can also be unbelief. It's a matter of where that complaint is coming from and where it's being directed. Is it being directed to God or to others or whatever the case might be? Now, I'm more interested in the first part of that. And we're told where it came from in these people, verses 11 and 12. They grumbled, saying... These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Don't you love that? Isn't that I mean, don't you just, you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day. When you read that, you should, you should hear the, prodigal, the older brother and the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. I have slaved for you all these years, he told his father. Do you feel that? You have made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day in the scorching heat. You've made them equal to us. And that's their problem. The psalmist saying, God, we know you're good and generous and faithful, but I can't see it. What's going on? Make it right. That's a prayer of faith. These people, they say to the master, you're corrupt and unkind, and this is unfair, and we deserve better, and you need to make it right. Now, that's very different. Their pride has been offended by the master's grace. Grace says 12 hours, one hour. It's all the same. And the one working for wages cannot abide that. They believe you should get only what you deserve. And their way of thinking, see, the problem is there's no place for gratitude. And so the antidote to the grumbling we see here is this practice, this habit of giving thanks. That's the first part of gratitude, giving thanks. It's not something that you feel. It's something that you do whether you feel anything or not. And as you do it, what happens is, is you begin to feel it. And it's as simple as just a couple of things. It's first just, just the matter of recognizing the gift that's being given. No matter what the circumstance is, there's always a gift. That's true. No matter what's going on in your life, if you look hard enough at it, you will see it is God's, God does not give something to us, that he, those that he loves, that is not in some measure a gift. Now, it may take a thousand years to figure out how that's true. But everything, every, the good and the bad, all of it comes to us from the heart of our Father as a gift. And so you have to recognize, you have to work hard to put your heart and mind into the habit and into the place of receiving everything that comes as a gift. Nothing is wages with the God of the Bible. Isn't that great news? Everything is gift, and so you recognize it. But as you recognize it, the second thing you got to do is you got to acknowledge the giver. I mean, you have to direct yourself towards the one from whom the gifts come. Andrew Peterson has this song called Don't You Want to Thank Someone, and it acknowledges that there's something in us that wants there to be somebody out there to thank. You can watch sitcoms around Thanksgiving, 
on TV, and they inevitably have everyone around the dinner table giving thanks. And I watch those things. A lot of them think I'm grateful for it. And I watch these people do this, and I, I want to just yell at the TV and say, but to who? Who are you saying thank you to? That's an important part. There's a big difference between saying at Thanksgiving, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for, and saying, Father, thank you for this good thing that you have brought into my life. Big difference. We recognize the gift that's being given and acknowledge the giver, and then we simply just respond by saying thank you. And the, ra- the reality is, is uh, we should say thank you a thousand times a day. Out, just thank you. Thank you. Because it's this attitude of giving thanks that is the antidote of grumbling. But then there's a second thing. That's the vertical. There's a horizontal element, too. And horizontally, what gratitude does is it not only gives thanks to God, but it celebrates with others. Because if you truly believe that all is grace, and if you're truly grateful, then you celebrate God's generous heart for you and his generous heart for others, too. Because if you can't, see, if you can't celebrate because it didn't happen to you like these people in the story, it means something's really wrong. It means something's really wrong. The all-day workers couldn't celebrate the master's generosity to the one-hour workers because it didn't happen to them. In fact, it took away whatever joy they had in what they had been given. His generosity to them made them feel like he wasn't being generous with them. And here we have to come back to the phrase in verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? That's not at all the way that it's written in the original language. In the Greek, it actually says this literally. This is fascinating to me as I saw this this week. It means, are your eyes bad? It's a phrase that's usually translated envy, almost universally in the Bible. So the problem here is envy. Envy is ingratitude on, a horizontal, on the horizontal axis. It looks around, and it sees what other people have, and then it roots against them because their success feels like my failure. Envy weeps when others weep. I mean, excuse me, envy weeps when others are rejoicing. It doesn't rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. And it rejoices, in fact, when they weep instead of weeping them with, with them when they weep. It doesn't celebrate others. It says, I deserve what they have. I deserve what they have. It should be mine. It's not fair. And I'm so grateful for the connection to the eyes there because it, what, what we're learning there is that it matters where you're looking. Too much looking around and not enough looking up is the reason why we find ourselves struggling with ingratitude and envy on, a, on the horizontal axis. So this is a real problem. It's, it'll just make you miserable. Envy, the, the moral philosophers write about envy being the most miserable of all the sins. It just makes you miserable, and these people are. I mean, anybody want these guys as friends? And so we need to lastly find the energy for gratitude because we need, we need this kind of work of God in our life. We need to know where gratitude comes from so we can avoid the dangers of grumbling and envy that just make us miserable. And the answer to the question, where does gratitude come from, is that it doesn't come from having lots of stuff. It comes from knowing that you deserve nothing. Gratitude is the echo of sovereign grace. You'll see that the third point there in your outline. And that's ultimately the teaching of this parable. The master says to the grumblers, pay attention to verses 14 and 15. Take what belongs to you. I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose, what I choose, with what belongs to me? Now, this, of course, is helping us understand how to relate to God properly. God is the master in the parable, so we have to ask the question, what belongs to God? And what's the answer? Everything. 
And is God allowed to do whatever he wants to do with what belongs to him? Absolutely he is. Can the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? No. God is absolutely free to do whatever with whoever, however, whenever, for however long, in whatever manner, and none can hold back his hand or accuse him of doing it wrong. That's the truth. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, the Bible says over and over again, Romans 9, 15. So Paul, in the very next verse there in chapter 9 of Romans, says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, what's the it there that depends upon God? Everything. It's all grace, which means the because of every good thing that I enjoy is not me but God. It also means that the because of every good thing that you enjoy is not you or some lack in me, but God. And when that really sinks in, do you understand there's nothing left but gratitude and celebration? This is a parable of the kingdom. The kingdom itself is a gift. Christians talk about the kingdom in the wrong way sometimes. We, we, we don't expand the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. We shouldn't talk about things that way. We receive the kingdom. It's a gift. And the kingdom of heaven comes through the words and work of the Lord Jesus himself, who was the gift of God to the world. Jesus did not come into the world because we were seeking him. He came into the world to seek and save us. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace, which means we do not get in through our effort, but through the work that he has done on our behalf. His life of perfect obedience, his sacrificial death upon the cross for sin, his resurrection power that enables us and all who believe to walk in newness of life. The only way to be a Christian is to bend your knee to grace, to stop trying to earn a wage. And that's what faith is, Romans 4 says, to the one who does not work but believes. So faith is trying, faith stops trying to achieve and instead receives all of life good and bad, as a gift. And that's the person who's right with God, Paul says. And that's why the parable ends the way it begins. Jesus sums it up in the very last verse that we have there in verse 16 as kind of the summary teaching of the entire story he's told. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, what does that mean? And I never say this sort of thing, uh, but I'm going to say it this morning. You're going to have to come back next Sunday to find out. It's a cliffhanger because we're out of time, but also because the next parable and in, in the next chapter really illustrates it better than I can. But for now, let me say this. I think part of what Jesus is saying here is that the power source for the kingdom of heaven is that Jesus Christ, the true first over all creation, became the last. The master became the servant. Eternally beloved of the Father was he spat on and scorned in order to reconcile us to God as he hung upon the cross. If that's true, then his kingdom, the kingdom of that one, that kingdom is the anti-meritocracy. It's the real upside down. What gets you in, what gets you ahead in the world, those are the things that keep you out and keep you back in the kingdom. What makes for success, according to the way we judge, will, from the perspective of heaven, be abject failure. The most dazzling person you meet in the new heavens and the new earth will have largely been unknown throughout her life here. That's what those words mean. And so when Jesus said in the Gospels that the only way to get into the kingdom was to repent, he, mean, he meant that you have to forsake not just the bad things that you do, but you also have to forsake the idea of your good works being enough. 
And when he said that to live in the kingdom, you have to keep on repenting over and over again, he was trying to let us in on how hard it is not to abandon grace and let works sneak in the back door. And one way you know, you want to know, you want to know if you have an intruder in the house? You want to know if if, if works has kind of weaseled its way back into your heart? Are you grateful? Do you just go through life just not being able to stop saying thank you and not being able just the reflex of your life being to just celebrate with everybody else who's got great things going on too? Or are you like these people? Upset because you feel like you haven't gotten what you deserve and really ticked off that other people have what should what should be yours. I'm really caught, I gotta be honest with you. I told you it's my least favorite parable, and for this reason, because the thing I gotta look in the mirror about with myself is that there's a heaviness about me and, and I can get into patterns and I've been there I think for a while. Um, because what happens is I revert to wages and I allow myself to become like these people, so I'm repenting. What about you? Where does this call you to repent as well? Because there should be a joy and a lightness and uh, just an overflowing sense about us. Because all of life is grace. Isn't that great news? And so the work that we have to do is even if we don't feel it inside to put our hearts to the work of giving thanks and asking him to heal us. So let's do that right now as we pray. Would you pray with me? So Father... We would admit to you that too often we just get stuck. We get stuck thinking about the way that we're not getting the bang for our buck. We're not getting out of life everything that we deserve because of what we've put in. And then we look around and we see other people who have not worked nearly as hard as we have, who've not done it right the way we have, and yet there seems to be so much good. And it just, it just throws us into so much confusion And our hearts get so twisted around and we lose uh, the reality of what we have to be grateful for. Forgive us. What a great sin that we excuse in ourselves. We we aren't diligent in our fight against. And so uh, forgive us that we are so intent. We are so intent on trying to earn a wage. It's because it's what our flesh wants so that at the end of the day, we would have something where we say, look, I did that. When we get to heaven, we, that we would be celebrated for being smart enough or committed enough or whatever it might be to get ourselves there. Oh, Father, forgive us and cause our knees to bend to grace this morning to, to acknowledge that every because of every good thing in our life is you and not us. And so from that would erupt just, a, just an attitude and a spirit of gratitude and joy but we know it's hard work. It really is hard work. And so in this, we have moments here at the end of the service to put ourselves to it. So would you begin to work? Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you begin to do that work in us? Would you begin to produce that work in us so that as we sing, it would be more than just words. It would truly be the cry of our hearts. And we would say, Jesus, you've done the heavy lifting. Jesus, yours is the glory. Jesus, thank you. And that that, act of thanksgiving would begin to change and heal our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so please, uh, the good news of the power of the gospel is that, and what these words mean for us, is that as we go now, uh, there are going to be probably some, some hard days this week. On the worst day, 
in the very worst moments of the worst day, there are still a thousand reasons for us to turn to God and say thank you. And I, I realize how hard that is, but I just want you to understand that if we are empowered by the Spirit to do that, every time we're able to do that, the kingdom of God comes. And so what we have to do is reach out and hold on to these words because they're the promise that if your faith is in Jesus, that God is bent on blessing you and keeping you and making his face shine upon you. So receive them uh, and let them just explode in your heart and gratitude and love and go saying thank you, go celebrating with others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.